Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 65 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I am pleased to welcome Christopher Combs, an assistant professor in aerodynamics in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at the University of Texas at San Antonio. A senior member of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, Combs was awarded his doctorate in aerospace engineering from the University of Texas at Austin in 2015. He most recently led the design and construction of the new Mach 7 wind tunnel at UT San Antonio. But today, we'll primarily be discussing the future of supersonic, hypersonic, and even suborbital passenger flight. Combs joins us from San Antonio. Chris, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thanks for having me, Bruce. First off, how would you define supersonic, hypersonic, and what we might call a bonafide space plane? That's an important question and an important distinction because there there are kind of, you know, as you go down the list of what you just asked, increasingly arbitrary definitions. So supersonic is is very well defined. That means you're moving faster than the speed of sound. And so the speed of sound in air at, say, atmospheric conditions is a little more than 1,000 feet per second. It's about 350 meters per second at sea level. And so for anybody in the audience that likes to play golf, a really good analogy, kind of the way the numbers work out, is if you were standing on a par four, let's say at the flag on the green, and somebody's standing at the tee on that par four, and they uh, swing their club and hit, hit their driver, you will hear the sound of the club impacting the ball right. about one second after you see them swing because that's the amount of time it takes that sound to travel that distance that length of a par four that's that's mach one that's Good how gosh. fast sound and pressure disturbances travel in atmospheric air so in other words if you're standing on the green in a par four course okay right and you actually have really good eyes or are using binoculars to look at someone do a tee shot you can actually see them swing but you won't hear it for until a second afterwards. And right. Because that, that sound is traveling at the speed of sound. And, and the speed of sound at sea level is what? Is it uh, 767 miles per hour? Is that right? Yeah, more or less. It's dependent on temperature, uh, but that's pretty close. Okay. Right? Anything moving faster than that speed would be deemed to be moving at supersonic speed. So that's a fixed definition. And there's some... Uh, very specific things from an aerodynamic perspective that start to happen right around that value. It can be a pretty sharp change in performance, and I think we're going to talk about that a little bit later. If you want to talk about hypersonic flight, anything moving at hypersonic speed is usually defined as moving about five times the speed of sound or greater. What's interesting is that's not really a hard and fast definition. It's not like there's, a, you know, there's a a textbook that I like that points out there's no flash of green light when you go from Mach 4.9 to 5.1. Um, there's no sudden change in your conditions that you're really looking out for, but it's kind of an academic textbook definition. What we're really looking at is you start to get into that speed regime and you have things like heating of your vehicle that really start to dominate your design. 
you can start to have uh, some complex chemistry happening with your airflow. You have very strong shock waves, a thin, what we call a shock layer, because the shock waves really start to hug along your vehicle because uh, they're so far swept back. Um, so it's really a bit more about some features that we see. And depending on conditions and flight regime, you can see those things happen at Mach 4. You cannot maybe not see them until Mach 8. It depends, but Mach 5 is kind of a, a general definition that's that's accepted for the most part by the community. Um, but it's a little bit different than sort of the, the more strict definition of what supersonic means. Now, space plane, I mean, that's very loose. I would say space plane is something that gets up to orbital speed and goes into space and has some sort of wing lifting body is reusable, right? So thinking something like the space shuttle, the X-37, right. um, that, that type of thing. I think that's how I would define a space plane, is something that actually does go up into space, um, has some lifting body characteristics, and then can land, uh, say, on a runway like, like a plane. But I'm sure there are people that would disagree with that also. We're, we're going to talk about space planes later. But uh, So first, let's talk about how a conventional uh, turbojet works you have um you know rotating uh, turbines and air comes in air is ingested by this uh, engine you compress it you mix in fuel and there's a combustion process that happens so you're heating up that air you're adding a lot of pressure and then you exhaust it out some nozzle and so you get high velocity air out and that's going to give you thrust that's really what's happening with a turbofan, you also have um, a larger set of blades that's rotating, and you have some air that bypasses the turbojet, um, and that gives you some additional thrust. But you don't see these used as often in you know, supersonic vehicles and high-performance fighter jets and things. And a lot of it's due to the fact that when you get going at high speed, that large surface area, it's creating a lot of drag and it's hard to design those larger components, um, those longer fans to deal with uh, the high loads that you're going to experience when you really get going fast. And the main reason for the turbofan in commercial aircraft, like passenger aircraft, better fuel economy, is that right? Right. You can, you can have a substantial increase in efficiency with, the, with an engine like that. Okay, so then let's look at the wing design because uh, we all are familiar with the swept wing. This encompasses a broad range of things. If you think back to like a Wright Brothers aircraft or some of the early World War II fighters and things like that, um, some kind of older air- aircraft or, or maybe a, you know, a Cessna prop, jet, prop or something like that, right. um, you have these wings that are not swept at all. They're kind of straight across. They're perpendicular to um, your fuselage, right? And so that would not be a swept wing. But then swept is going to encompass anything where basically the, the tip of the wing is going to be further back than the root. All right. And so you, you get kind of a triangular shape, more or less. And these are you know, going to be essential for a high-speed vehicle, but they also are going to increase efficiency for um, most subsonic aircraft as well. And it's going to effectively increase their critical Mach number and allow them to fly faster and still be stable and still be efficient. So you'll see swept wings in commercial aircraft. You'll see them in high-speed aircraft. Um, in, in commercial aircraft, this is done to basically increase your critical Mach number so that you can fly faster and still be efficient. Um, so it really is, it's a various types of swept wings 
are common for really a wide range of aircraft. Um, and then it's just a matter of kind of defining what that sweep should be, um, how critical that sweep is, uh, and, you know, kind of the overall shape of the vehicle. But, but you're going to see it over a wide flight regime. So let's uh, just for argument's sake, let's say we. I'm trying to think of one of those P51 Mustangs, which did not have a swept mm-hmm. wing. It was pretty like perpendicular to the fuselage. Right. So right. let's just say that this thing suddenly went. To, uh, I'm not saying it's going to, but let's just say it went supersonic. What what would happen to that uh, perpendicular wing? Well, there's a couple things that would be going on. Um, one, you can get away with going close to Mach one with even a pretty traditional airfoil a lot of you know commercial aircraft can pretty easily generate a shock on the wing even when they're going transonic or subsonic speed when they start to approach cruise Um, so even if the aircraft itself is say moving at Mach 0.85 you can have supersonic flow on a portion of the wing Um, if you sweep the wing you can kind of cheat a little bit and delay the speed at which that really starts to happen so um, in say a P51, if you started to approach Mach 1 and you and it's, the wing is not swept, you're going to develop a shock on the wing earlier than you would at a lower Mach number. And this would be a subsonic Mach number. All right, You would develop that shock on the wing well before you reach Mach 1. And that's going to cause some uh, significant drag. And this is why for a long time the speed of sound was referred to as a sound barrier because people, it took some time to figure that stuff out. Um, there's actually not a barrier, right? We, of course, we've seen plenty of things move faster than the speed of sound, but it did seem that way for a while. And so that's one of the things that's going to happen is you're going to have a real tough time um, just cracking through that transonic flight period where your drag is exceptionally high. It actually does start to go back down after you surpass Mach 1. And uh, what there's is kind that? of a peak there. And what's the... Uh... You know, we, we, now we, 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 there are pictures of the moment that c- certain military aircraft become supersonic, like, you know, military jets. And you can see this kind of fan-like apparition almost. So I'm really glad you brought that up, Bruce, because that is one of my favorite things to debunk in the aerospace community that I see people talk about a lot. And it's something that's very commonly misunderstood. It's exceptionally rare and i honestly i don't know if it ever happens where someone actually snaps a photo at what maybe you would say is the exact moment that an aircraft surpasses mach 1 what you are actually seeing is what we call an expansion fan that's a feature that generally follows a shock wave and it's the result of supersonic air that is suddenly given more room to expand uh-huh. all right you see these under the right conditions because if it's humid that expansion fan, what the expansion fans always does, it drops pressure and it drops temperature. And if you get a sudden local drop in temperature and the air is sufficiently humid, then you'll get condensation. And so that's what you're actually seeing is you're seeing an expansion fan that's somewhere downstream of a shockwave. And then that usually terminates when uh, the flow goes back to subsonic, where there's a shock. And it's caused, uh, by, so, and it's caused, caused by humidity in the atmosphere? Yes. And so really when they seem like they're flickering in and out, which happens in some of these videos, that's really most likely result of changing local atmospheric conditions where they're flying through some spots where there's more or less water vapor in the air. And it's not that they're suddenly accelerating and decelerating through the speed of sound. You know, it might be that they're flying constant at Mach 1.1. If you, if in some of these videos you do hear a sonic boom, 
that's maybe what's going on. But a lot of times with those videos, maybe they're flying at Mach 0.95 or something like that. And you can still see those features. So in other words, these pictures of this uh, phenomena in a normal transonic, uh, when a, when a, going from subsonic to transonic or going from subsonic to supersonic to beyond, the, beyond Mach 1, you're not necessarily going to have this fan of humidity or this uh, 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 after effect of crossing the sound barrier. Is that right? Yeah, you really you really need to have humid conditions. And so that's why it's most commonly seen in these flybys over an aircraft carrier or something like that or at air shows next to the beach or in Florida. Uh-huh. Um, but if somebody's, you know, flying up high in the atmosphere, they're not going to see that. Well, it's pretty it makes an impressive looking photo. <laughs> it does. It's a really cool thing to see for sure. Um, but it's just it's a really common misconception what's actually going on there. So let's get to the 800-pound gorilla in the room, and that is John F. Kennedy had an, uh, was uh, pushing forth a program, American SST program, uh, which is uh, certainly uh, long before you were born. We're not going to get into the in the weeds of the of the politics or, around that, but let's just say that uh, basically the promise of supersonic transport in a passenger sense inside the continental U.S never really materialized back in the in mid-60s. Basically, it's been, what, you know, 60 years, and we still haven't... We, uh, in fact, Arion, we're going to talk about Arion, which was a venture to develop a supersonic business jet, just uh, went belly up earlier this year. And Airbus mm-hmm. had a- actually had... I think Airbus had invested some money in it. And, uh, yeah, they had. And uh, just went belly up. I had even done a couple of stories on it, and so I'm very disappointed personally to see that happen. I personally am all for supersonic, hypersonic, space planes, you name it. I'm all for speed. I just don't understand why we're still at 20, you know, in the early 2020s uh, when we thought we were going to have shuttles to the moon in the 60s and we still don't have supersonic aircraft. And I think there's a lot of really practical reasons why you don't see supersonic passenger aircraft. Now, we do have to, to qualify there's plenty of supersonic aircraft out there that are used every day, right? Um, you most mean of our fighter jets? Mi- mi- fighter most, jets, right? Yeah, fighter jets fly at Mach 2, um, 2 plus. SR 71 flew Mach 3. We, we, it's not like there is some technical barrier that is preventing us from routinely flying at supersonic speeds. It's been figured out for a while. But in terms of supersonic commercial aircraft availability, um, Really, I think the biggest reason is sonic booms. The noise issue, right? The, the noise. noise issue, right. Because people, understandably, hate sonic booms. You don't want to be sitting in your house, and then every now and then, when, every time a, flame, a plane flies over, you know, your house shakes. So pretty soon, I think, uh, when we were doing a lot of these supersonic flight tests, people realized how much communities did not appreciate sonic booms. Uh, and you... You throw on top of that the fact that there are some efficiency challenges. There's addition, and these vehicles are going faster, so there's structural challenges. They are harder designs uh, to to pull off and to get right and to to fly safely. It's not that it can't be done, but it's just more challenging. Uh, and so, and there was there's limited passenger capacity for something like that um, compared to you know the big jumbo jets. So it suddenly became a difficult business case because you're limited to overseas flights because nobody's going to let you fly supersonic over land. And, and it kind of became a hard thing to justify. So you can understand why it went away. Now, one other common misconception 
a lot of people think that you just get a sonic boom when you surpass the speed of sound. Kind of this idea that these shockwaves pop up in the instant that you go from Mach 0.99 to 1.01. That's actually not the case. And that's part of why supersonic transport over land has faced challenges is because as long as you're flying at supersonic speed, there is a carpet of sonic boom underneath you and all around you, really. So you're creating shockwaves in front of your vehicle and from your wings and everything on the ground underneath you as you pass by will hear a sonic boom just whenever that shockwave passes over. So in other ears. words, it's not, it's not a one-off proposition. It's a, right. It's, it's not a, like we just need to address, make sure people you know, uh, accelerate when they're over a rural area. Right. It's the entire flight path where this would be a concern. Good gosh. Uh, so, yeah, so that's part of the challenge. And so that's why NASA has been investing in quiet supersonic tech so that they can uh, work to reduce the sonic boom signature that's generated by high-speed aircraft. Uh, there's a lot of promise there. That's an exciting project. But it's going to take something like that to make this possible. And that's part of why you haven't seen it yet. And that work is being done in Southern California at the Neil Armstrong. I forgot the, te- the, the exact title of the center, but it's a NASA center. People forget that NASA is really National Aeronautics and Space Administration, and people forget that they're heavily involved in aeronautics, not just space. The, yes, certainly. I hear they made great progress in this noise problem. Yeah, I think it's very, very promising. And basically what they've been able to do um, is design vehicles, uh, design a vehicle that uh, is creating these waves that's still able to move at supersonic speed. But then by the time they reach the ground, those waves have kind of canceled each other out and dissipated rather than uh, lumping all together into one stronger wave, which happens with most aircraft. And so it's really just about clever design and, and thinking uh intelligently about basically the geometry of the outer mold lines of this vehicle and with modeling and experiments they've been able to figure out how to make something that will fly and fly efficiently while also when it's at altitude cruising at supersonic speed uh, the sonic boom is going to be more of a thump Uh, and they i know that they've also been doing tests with actually with fighter jets uh, that are able to recreate sounds with similar decibel level to what they expect uh, from the uh, from the Quest aircraft, this NASA quiet supersonic transport. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been flying over some areas in the Gulf with, and doing some uh, surveys of the local population to see what they think about this sound level and how they perceive it. Because it's one thing to say, well, we're going to reduce the sonic boom sound by X percent. And sure, that seems like us at NASA, that sounds like that would be great. But you got to get a feel for what people in their houses think about it at the end of the day, if, if this is ever going to really take off, uh, you know, pardon the pun. So uh, they've been doing some work like that as well. And I'm kind of anxious to see the results of those surveys. Uh, but it, that, that will be telling also. But I, I know that that's been on track and they've been working on this for a while. But I, th- I think there are some test flights. You know, they've actually been building the aircraft. There's been some really exciting photos um, of that construction coming together so, so that's you're saying are you saying that nasa well. has been testing this over the gulf of mexico yeah with uh my understanding is with some fighter jets and if they bank at the right angle um they can basically create a sonic boom that's not 
quite as loud as it normally would be, but they can kind of tune that. So it's about the noise they think they will get from this aircraft if it's traveling directly overhead. And they're using that to kind of get a feel for what people will think about it. So what about the uh, the three concerns that are looking into supersonic commercial uh, passenger flight? And that is British reaction engines, Arion, we just discussed. If you could tell us you think why you think that didn't work. And then just uh, recently, Boom, according to the Rob report, uh, this venture called Boom uh, has already tested a demonstrator aircraft and sold 15 of, of its uh, overture aircraft, which are 30-seat supersonic transports, to United Airlines. Boom, of the ones you mentioned, I think has the most promise of getting something to market in terms of an aircraft soon. You know, obviously, Arion's kind of out of the race, but... Um, Boom Boom and Arion were working on very similar things, these kind of low supersonic Mach number, kind of in the 1.5-ish range, small passenger jet type aircraft. They both got investment from, uh, you know, from some big names, but Boom is the one that's really been able to kind of stick uh, stick on a schedule and actually build some things and has, has really been showing progress. Arion, it's, you know, without being on the inside, it's, it's hard to know what happens sometimes with these businesses, you know, what's the difference between, you know, two concepts that look very similar and why one has success and one doesn't. One thing from the outside that did always kind of strike me with Arion was every time I saw a release or checked their website, it seemed like their their aircraft model looked different. When you see that, it kind of started to raise questions of, you know, are they having trouble settling on a design? Is something going on internally? Um, can they not really make up their mind what they're trying to do or is something not working? For whatever reason, Boom has seemed to have a more streamlined, straightforward, clear path. And they've you know, got some customers and gotten got an investment uh, and, and it's been working out. Arion, it's hard to know exactly why they shut down. They did. I don't think COVID helped. But like you said, they did have some Airbus investments, so it, they weren't totally out of money. But the, the justification that they gave at the time was that they didn't have sufficient resources to keep going. So it's it's always been a tough market to crack and justify. I do think that one problem with both of these, uh, both Boom and Arion, is that they're not really pushing for quiet supersonic. Um, they're still kind of counting on a lot of reliance on overseas routes. Um, so there's still some limitations in the market potential there. Uh, but, but Boom has been able to kind of stick with it. Now, reaction is working a very different problem. And that uh, more in line with, you know, the space planes thing that you talk about. Reaction has this history that goes way back to some, you know, some Rolls-Royce uh, work and some British problems. And they've been working on these combined cycle engine concepts and kind of piece by piece have been trying to do all the different uh, parts of this combined cycle engine that they would like to, you know, one day in the distant future power a space plane. Right. So they've been working on this uh, Sabre engine idea. And, but the thing, I've got to give them a lot of credit for this. Something that they've done is they've been able to parcel out the different challenge components of this engine design and identify different subsystems that have market value. So they've pushed this heat exchanger technology that can improve the efficiency of an engine and this pre-cooler stuff. You could see short-term military applications 
and they've had success with some things like that. So they've been testing, you know, some of the thermal management components of, of for the airflow, uh, and been tackling those aspects, and then been able to market those uh, so far. And that's kind of will give them a jumping off point as they continue to sort of step up uh, into the increasingly challenging parts of this engine that that they're going for. But that's kind of been able to keep them afloat and keep the dream alive in, in what I thought was kind of a very clever approach. And when do you think they'll actually have a, an aircraft that's marketable? Not soon. I think <laughs> the, I mean, even the combined cycle engine, if if we really saw that come together in the next 10 years or so, that would just be remarkable. The integrating it into an aircraft is an entirely different challenge. Even things like 15 to 20 years, once you get to that point, that's a long ways out. Um, but it's, it's, I don't think you see the Skylon aircraft in 10 years. So let's talk about scramjets, uh, which are supersonic combustion ramjet engines. A turbojet, like I said, is... That's going to have a, a turbine inside of it, a, basically rotating blades that are compressing air. Ramjets and scramjets are based on a similar concept where when you start moving at high enough speeds, particularly at supersonic speeds, you can actually compress air with just shock waves, with geometry. You don't need a rotating fan to do that for you. Um, so if you design your geometry in an appropriate way, you can have shock waves in certain places and that will give you your compression. The difference between a scramjet and a ramjet is in a scramjet, the flow inside the engine continues on at supersonic speed. In a ramjet, that's going to be applicable in lower speed regime. Um, it's a similar type of concept, but you're actually shocking the air down to subsonic speed inside the engine. All right. Um, so a ramjet was integrated, for example, into the SR-71. Um, and when it was at its top speed, it was actually about 80% of the thrust was coming from the ramjet component. But it really is, it's a duct. It's an open channel. You've got a shock wave out front um, that shocks the air, generates compression, and basically you light it and you get thrust out of a nozzle in the back end. That's a ramjet. In a scramjet, you will end up with a reflecting set of shocks inside this duct and the air continues on at supersonic speed and then you're still mixing fuel and lighting it out the back end uh, and uh, generating your thrust through a nozzle at the exit so they're similar concepts but you do not need rotating components internally to generate thrust because you can use shock waves concord for instance uh, um, was it using ramjet technology that was actually using primarily uh, a turbojet. At Mach 2 or so, uh -huh. our, uh, our turbojet engines still work fairly well. You really start to run into problems um, around Mach 3 and especially up to Mach 4. And so that's why, for example, the SR-71 to, to fly at Mach 3 plus integrated a ramjet into the design. Because once you start going that fast, the, the, the turbine is going to have a hard time processing that air. Um, and so then it's going to be more efficient to go to a ramjet. And then once you get, I don't know, about to Mach 5 or 6, then the scramjet uh, is really what starts to make more sense. Uh, and we really do not have a turbine design that could handle, uh, say, a Mach 3.5 plus airflow. And so the average, so, uh, just for the, uh, 
the, the listener who actually are out there flying, I believe the triple seven was a was a pretty fast aircraft i mean it was one of the faster ones it went like what point kind of topped out at 0.85 mach yeah and uh the 747 a little bit slower uh actually the newer models of the 747 have the 777 beat by just a little bit oh is that Um, right okay correct most of the kind of higher end commercial aircraft are all lumped into this mach 0.85 0.86 range okay um so there are I think some of the newer 747s are kind of 0.86 plus, um, maybe up to even 0.9, depending on how how they're running things. But what about um, the the Boeing? What about the 787, difference. the Dreamliner, and the then the A350, the Airbus? Yeah, they're also in that same ballpark. Okay, um, but due to air traffic control, I assume most of the time they're not running at the highest speeds. I mean, that's the thing, right? You're yeah, you're going to start to lose some efficiency up there. Um, and so they're, they're really going to run at their best at that kind of Mach 0.85. That's what they're designed for. Scramjets, as I noted in Forbes, have been a concept since the 50s, but it wasn't until the 60s that the scramjets were actually tested in the lab. And to date, uh, NASA still holds the scramjet speed record for its X-43A experimental aircraft, which achieved Mach 9.68 on November 16th, 2004. Is that still the speed record? That's still the speed record. Now, they had the X-51 Wave Rider, and that's actually got the record for duration of flight because um, it, it flew for about three and a half minutes. Uh, and But the X-43 still has the speed record. As I write in Forbes, at Mach 10, you could do Sydney to Los Angeles in about an hour and a half. In other words, you could take a 14-hour flight and cut it almost to nothing. You're talking teleportation speeds. I'm down here in San Antonio, <laughs> and at Mach 7, you can get from San Antonio to just about anywhere in the continental U.S. in about 20 minutes. Good. And gosh. so you're talking about, you know, I could go and have dinner in New York City and get home in time for bed, right? Right. Uh, so it's it's pretty, pretty remarkable to think about that possibility. Now, I write that uh, the absolute upper limit for hypersonic flight is about Mach 15. Now we're t- we're talking about atmospheric flight, which the kind of like the the sweet spot is a hundred thousand feet. I'm not sure that I would say there's an absolute upper upper limit for hypersonic flight in the atmosphere. I mean, the, the shuttle came back at Mach 25, and Apollo came back at Mach 30. You can go faster than that. Any kind of boost glide vehicle would be going faster than that. But for a scramjet, no, I don't think you'd see it going faster than Mach 15. So aeroheating, which is one of your specialties, has been uh-huh. described as hypersonic's biggest hurdle. Uh, I noted in Forbes that at hypersonic speeds, aeroheating can cause extremely dangerous temperatures of up to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit that can melt aluminum and titanium. The problem is materials, right? It, uh, GE was working on some sort of composite material that might be able to handle these uh, high temperatures yeah, I mean, high temperature is a serious issue. Even the Concorde was just flying at Mach 2, and it could experience 100 degrees C temperatures, so like a t- over 200 F on its surface. And that's just at Mach 2. Uh, the SR-71 was flying at Mach 3, and it actually uh, would leak fuel on the runway to accommodate for all the material expansion that was going to happen once it got up to speed. You can imagine, you, and this trend just increases exponentially as you increase Mach number. And 3,000 degrees F is actually a little bit uh, generous 
you're talking surface of the sun temperatures really at some of these higher Mach numbers. It's actually hot enough to rip apart the air molecules uh, and and ionize the air and generate a plasma. So um, and and then a, a challenge is that those air molecules once they're ripped apart they recombine into other things, uh, into all kinds of NOx products and radicals. Uh, so that makes the modeling simulation very challenging as well because suddenly you're not really even flying through air anymore in a certain sense. So heating really is, like you said, it's one of the largest problems in hypersonic flight. Your design becomes dominated by heating. And there's a few different approaches. If you don't care if something's reusable or not, or not, we have ablators, uh, ablative materials that basically are designed to be sacrificial and to burn away uh, to protect your vehicle. That's what happens with space capsules uh, and, you know, uh, with re reentry vehicles and things like that. So explain what you we mean by the term ablative. You mean actually you have material that, that's coated on the outside of the aircraft that's designed to just flake off. Well, and not just flake off, it actually really burns off. Burns off. the best okay. way to put it. Um, and so you, if you, people have watched Apollo 13 and there's that uh, when the capsule is reentering and everything looks like it's on fire, that's pretty accurate. That's what's going on. And that's happening by design. Uh, those materials withstand that. They burn away and it's kind of a sacrificial layer. So that is an approach. Um, but then there are also, um, you know, some reusable tile type type materials that, you, for, for example, were used on the space shuttle and that SpaceX is working on for their Starship vehicle. Um, that's tough to get right, though. Uh, we've already seen SpaceX have potentially some problems with their tiles breaking and, and cracking even before a test. Um, the shuttle had some uh, very unfortunate tile problems that caused loss of vehicle. So that's, that's a tricky solution, but it's been done uh, with, with some success. And then there is this new generation of ceramic matrix composites, 3D woven carbon fibers, uh, some more exotic materials that are potentially reusable, some things that you could even wrap around a vehicle like a blanket. Uh, that's exciting stuff. Now, what you're talking about the GE's done, that's been more to more looking at what we're putting on the inside of an engine or on a turbine blade to, to keep those components from, from wearing down or burning up. Because if you can run an engine hotter, you can run it more efficiently. The problem in hypersonics is we're talking about the entire vehicle itself. Um, or at the very least, the part uh, kind of facing the flow uh, in a re-entry situation, although even a back shell uh, or an area in a wake is going to experience some extreme heating. Now, what do you mean so, by a back shell? What, define what you mean by back shell. So I'm thinking uh, more, in, more in terms of an, on the space shuttle or maybe a, a capsule design. Uh, there's usually a rounded kind of belly part of those vehicles that's going to be pointed into uh, the flow direction. And then there's some area on the backside that's more in the wake and not quite as exposed to the flow, but it still gets hot. Part of why you get shockwaves in the first place is because when you start moving faster than the speed of sound and air, the what it means is you're moving faster than the speed that pressure disturbances can move. And what that really means is you're moving faster than the air molecules can talk to each other. I think that's the most kind of conceptual way that I can put it. So normally, if you wave your hand through the air or if you're driving your car through the air, it's moving slow enough that molecules that are in front of your car or in front of your hand, they know that your hand is coming before it gets there. And they have time to adjust and move out of the way. All right. Once something is moving at supersonic speed, there's no time for that to happen. They're going to get hit before they know the thing is coming, all right? 
that's why you have a shock wave because you can't have molecules physically go through a geometry. That's not possible. Um, so the shock wave is there to very rapidly course correct and move things out of the way because otherwise it wouldn't happen. It's kind of nature's way of ensuring that you don't just have air molecules trying to go straight through a solid body. Across a shock wave, there's a very rapid change in pressure and in temperature. Pressure and temperature increase dramatically across a shock wave. This is why you have what we call wave drag. And as soon as a vehicle moves at supersonic speed, uh, the drag increases tremendously because of pressure across the shock waves. But um, it's the same reason during reentry or during hypersonic flight that we get very, very high heat and pressure loads um, downstream of basically from the nose of the vehicle and on down because a, the stronger the, the Mach number, basically the faster you're moving, the stronger that shock wave, wave becomes and the higher of a temperature and pressure ratio you get across that shock. So you can have enormous jumps in temperature and pressure just across the shock wave as those molecules desperately try and move out of the way of this thing that they couldn't see coming. And so literally, I think the top speed for the Concorde was what, 2.4, Mach Mm -hmm. 2.4? Something like that, yeah. Okay, and so you're saying at high speeds at Mach 2 or above, its uh, outer uh, exterior of the aircraft would heat up to about 200 degrees Fahrenheit. Let's say this thing was... uh, you know, cruising uh, off the coast of France. It was just coming through the channel. It was making its way down to Paris. And I actually was lucky enough uh, many years ago, I was on on the runway at at Charles de Gaulle in a conventional uh, (laughs) passenger jet. And I got to see a a Concorde take off on the next runway. It was fabulous. Oh, wow. So let's say you're cruising along at, at Mach 2, your outer skin is at 200 degrees Fahrenheit. By the time you land, let's say you do a quick landing and you're not held up by by uh, air traffic control, if uh, someone who was working on the ground crew came up and touched the outer part of the, of, of the Concorde, would it still feel warm? I think that it would. It depends on timing. But yeah, I think there's a very good chance that that, uh, that, that vehicle would still feel hot to the touch. Good gosh. It's amazing. Just, I mean, an interesting anecdote... NASA has a eight-foot hypersonic high-temperature tunnel. It's one of the most incredible test facilities in the world. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get a tour. It's large enough you can walk around on the inside of the test chamber, which is very, very rare uh, for a hypersonic facility. Usually, they're much smaller than that. They run once a day, and uh, they usually run first thing in the morning and then spend the rest of the day preparing for the next test. It gets so hot in that facility that if you walk inside the test chamber immediately after a test it'll melt the soles off your shoes i remember going in it was about two or three in the afternoon when i got to peek around and check it out and the test model that they had that had run at 8 a.m in the morning was still warm to the touch when i went in there six and a half hours later that and that was at hypersonic speed but there are similar phenomena happening even as low as Mach 2 so there, there is one venture that i actually left out at the beginning and that is uh, the atlanta-based Hermius uh, Corporation startup that has been funded $60 million by the U.S. Air Force and some other venture capital firms to do a model of a uh, passenger hypersonic aircraft that can do Mach 5, supposedly travel from New York to Paris in 90 minutes. 
the the fastest that the Concorde usually flew was what three and a half hours from New York to Paris, or three hours. That's right. Yeah, I think so. What What are your thoughts on this venture, this Hermes? It's exciting, but boy, is it ambitious. Um, they're talking about <laughs> having a a vehicle that they are testing in two years, and I haven't seen even the power plant necessarily the the propulsion actually you know tested in a wind tunnel is potentially potentially they've done this and they haven't released it yet that's a lot to get done in two years um because you're not just talking about building an airframe you're talking about integrating a novel propulsion technology that hasn't been proven but we're, we're talking about a lot of different technologies that are unproven that you're integrating into one piece in a very short amount of time uh, so m- maybe they know something that we don't maybe they've made progress that we that they haven't talked about yet um, but based on what publicly, where we know that they are, that that's going to be really hard to do, uh, even even a smaller scale demonstrator. And just look, for example, at the problems that the USDOD has had with the Aero Boost Glide vehicle, right? Um, they've been trying for months to get a test flight off, and there have been multiple setbacks that aren't even related to the hypersonic test technology to begin with. And unfortunately, this is a very common thing in hypersonics where there are so many other things that you have to do right that are complicated before you even get to the hypersonics part. There's just a lot that can go wrong. Um, and so to to have a full-up test of a scale, even a scaled vehicle in a couple of years uh, is is very very ambitious, but I'm excited to watch it and see what happens. Well, they they hope to have a uh, a cargo carrying uh, version in 2025 and a passenger uh, version in 2029. Anyway, wish them luck. Yeah. So moving on, you mentioned Boost Glide. That simply means you are accelerating into the suborbital and you are gliding back down into the atmosphere. Is that right? That's right. That's going to be an unpowered vehicle where you boost with a rocket motor, um, and then you have some uh, smaller submunition or vehicle that separates just a little unpowered glider, and then that will glide potentially with control surfaces to some destination or target. And so the whole uh, the crux of the scramjet technology, there are versions of scramjets that can be used with uh, oxidizers. So in other words, at high, high altitudes, high up in the stratosphere, uh, at 100,000 feet or more, the oxygen levels at that altitude are so low that there's no oxygen to extract from the atmosphere re- very readily, right? So right. Uh, rockets, have to, that's why they, they had to have the liquid oxygens to be able to right. fuel uh, their power plants. So in other words, we're talking about scramjets it's a way of harvey, har- of harvesting existing oxygen, which may be, you know, the, these molecules may be few and far between, and use them to cre- uh, so you don't have to carry your own oxidizer, right? Yeah. So a scramjet is what we call an air-breathing propulsion system, and it's just like a turbojet or a turbofan, where your oxidizer is air that's in the atmosphere. And so scramjets are designed to fly longer duration within the atmosphere. But as you point out, you get to a certain altitude, a certain point in the atmosphere, scramjet isn't going to be effective anymore because to for the type of mass flow rate that you need, it's very hard to envision a scramjet 
that is dr- going to be driven by oxygen carried on board, um, you're going to need to just be uh, be ingesting air from your environment through an inlet. Uh, and that's how all of our scramjets have worked previously that we've tested. That's how our fighter jets ingest air. So that's not a particularly novel thing, although with a scramjet, it's tricky to get right. And you do want to design things to maximize the um, basically the amount of mass that you're going to swallow, so to speak, uh, of, of that air. Yeah, you have this issue where if you want to have a scramjet as maybe part of a single stage to orbit, uh, it, it's going to have to be some intermediate component in a combined cycle engine because you can't use a scramjet to take off because you need to be moving at supersonic speed for the scramjet to run. So you need something to get you up to speed. But then once you hit a certain altitude, the scramjet's not going to work anymore. And then you're going to have to transition to a rocket, right? Um, So that is an inherent limitation of a scramjet if you want to use it for high altitude or space operations is it's got a limitation in range before you're going to have to cut it off and switch to something else. Um, But then a big challenge with scramjets is that the air inside the inlet is moving at supersonic speed. And so an analogy that we like to use that kind of addresses one of the issues uh, that, that exist is this lighting a match in a hurricane problem, where how do you keep the scramjet lit? How do you mix the fuel appropriately with this very, very high-speed air that's coming through? Um, and that that's something that people are working on actively in research right now. And then another thing that can happen that's not particularly well understood is called scramjet unstart. That means that the shockwave system, for one reason or another, Oftentimes, maybe because of a high-pressure event inside your combustor, the shockwaves in the supersonic air actually gets pushed back out the front of your scramjet. It gets pushed back out the inlet, and then the engine unstarts. That's the term for it. Um, basically, you can imagine you're flying at Mach 5 and your engine turns off, right? Mm. Not, not a good thing that you want to happen. And this has been experienced in multiple scramjet flight programs. Um, that's another thing that people are working on is, is there a way that if there's some pressure instability that's going to lead to unstart, can we detect it? Can we stop it? Can we uh, prevent unstart from happening before it shuts our engine down and, and causes our uh, our aircraft to crash? So but, I mean, I assume, though, if you're high enough up, uh, you still have some control, even though you don't have any engines, right? I mean, you could glide it to, back to Earth or not. Yeah, and you would have multiple engines. Uh, and it's not that once an engine unstarts, you couldn't restart it. Um, but it would, there would be some serious concerns about the abruptness with which it could happen uh, that could cause loss of control or that could uh, create some really strong uh, maybe pitch or yaw moments uh, that would maybe do some things that you don't want. Okay. So it, it could be a real jolt, so to speak. In terms of our understanding of aerodynamics, 100 years after the Wright brothers, are there still things that we do not understand about the physics of flight. Yeah, I mean, there are some very fundamental things that we still struggle with. One thing uh, is just transition the turbulence. Uh, And so if you have, there's a key concept, uh, laminar flow versus turbulent flow. And laminar flow, you can imagine, it's if you think about water coming out of a faucet that's kind of crystal clear and smooth and almost mirror-like, that's laminar flow. It's nice, it's pretty, it's repeatable. Uh, and then you have turbulent flow, and that is kind of what maybe you think it is. It's chaotic. Uh, it can be unsteady. Uh, it can appear quite random at times. And uh, over a vehicle body, often inevitably, the flow will transition from a laminar to a turbulent state. 
And a lot of times that happens, that can happen in a very inconvenient place and on a hypersonic vehicle. Um, heating rates for transitional and turbulent flow are much, much higher than they are for laminar flow. You get unsteadiness, you get pressure loads. And so if you get turbulent transition in a place that you didn't expect, it will very much change your design. But the processes that govern turbulent transition are very, very sensitive to a wide number of variables to the point where it's almost impossible to predict ahead of time on any kind of complex realistic geometry in the real world. We're just not very good at that right now. Um, but it, that's a strong limiter in your design and it uh, kind of limits the, the precision with which you can complete a design uh, or uh, it, it basically is going to force you to, uh, to really increase your factors of safety across the board uh, in, in a way that you know, really, really hampers your efficiency. Getting these propulsion systems to work consistently very hard to do. Uh, the materials challenge is very real that we mentioned. And so designing these materials, constructing these materials, building them at scale is holding us back. I mean, the scramjet concept has been around for a long time, but just it, there haven't been that many demonstrators. So it's not a mature technology right now. Even pre understanding uh, some of the chemical effects and what we call chemical non-equilibrium that happens across shock waves when you're moving very fast, just in general, having a very good predictive capability of what flows will look like over a high-speed vehicle that would allow us to iterate quickly on designs uh, just doesn't really exist right now. So there's a lot of basic science work that still needs to be done to better understand uh, the hypersonic flow regime. So uh, what do you envision in 30 years' time for the next generation of leisure travelers? Will they travel via hypersonic aircraft? I think that the supersonic private aircraft industry is going to happen. Um, I do think that that will still be kind of a first-class ticket or private jet um, <laughs> okay. elite traveler type All of right. situation. I have a hard time seeing that becoming just the norm um, anytime soon. I think hypersonic transports probably will happen in the next 30 years. Um, at what scale, I'm not sure. Maybe there will also be some hypersonic uh, private jets. I don't think us peasants will be uh, flying around on those, but maybe I'll get lucky uh, and get invited by somebody. Right. I think you will see some military applications for that for sure, uh, sooner rather than later. I think that the most likely thing that we'll see in terms of high-speed transport will be something like the SpaceX Starship, whether it's that or something else similar, I'm not sure. But maybe a, a orbital or slightly suborbital rocket uh, vehicle that's boosted up and then glides down to a uh, to a destination. So uh, I so, think that's so space, more feasible short term. So space planes. I mean, in other words, uh, in other words, you think there could be a high high ticket uh, space plane out there? Yes, that could get you around the world in an hour or something like Good that. Good, that'd be that great. That's, I think that that is probably more likely to come to fruition in the short term than sustained hypersonic flight in the atmosphere for large numbers of passengers. So in other words, uh, leapfrog the, leak, leapfrog the in infrastructure in the same way the telecommunications did with the mobile technology instead of building all that land-based technology. And in other words, instead of using our atmosphere for hypersonics, just go straight to suborbital and, and glide back, right? Right. I think that that's an easier problem to solve with what we have right now. 
So what, uh, final thing, what uh, puzzles you most about the aerodynamics of hypersonic flight as we understand it today? What I am working on actively the most right now is a thing called shockwave boundary layer interactions where if, and this is relevant for hypersonic flights because both external surfaces, whether you have a fin, a flap, a control surface, um, and internal features like the inlet of a scramjet, um, the isolator of a scramjet, they're going to create shockwaves because anything moving at supersonic speed creates a shockwave out in front of it. So you have all these little features and they get shockwaves, but they have very strong interactions with any kind of surface that they, that they impinge on. And that can create lots of pressure load. It can create a lot of heating. Uh, there's a great example where the X-15 hypersonic flight from the 60s, uh, they tested a dummy ramjet on, on a ventral fin and a stray shockwave boundary layer interaction actually sheared off the entire ventral fin and the dummy ramjet. These can be like a, a, a torch, basically, on your vehicle because they oscillate very fast, they move around, they're unsteady, uh, and we really aren't at the bottom yet of the physics of what makes them do what they do. And there's a lot of room for research and trying to understand those better. So that's a problem I've been working on a lot lately, and it, it's pretty interesting. Chris, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Sure thing. I recommend people uh, look me up on Twitter at Dr. Chris Combs. I'm pretty easy to find. I try and interact and answer questions as much as I can. So just hop on there, give me a follow, ask a question on my posts, uh, try to put some informative threads here and there. And you can find uh, on my Twitter page a link to information about my lab and, and email as well if you want to learn more. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Chris Combs, thanks so much for giving us a better understanding of the future of hypersonics and suborbital flights. Thanks a bunch, Bruce. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on the show. Had a blast. Thanks so much for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>